but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've, I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. I'm James. The 2023 French Open is in the books. A 23rd Grand Slam title for Novak Djokovic. A fourth for Iga Svantec. I mean, I guess reasonable people should have expected those two winners before the tournament. For various reasons. Yeah. In hindsight. While it gives me no pleasure that that was the winner, it does give me some that I was right. Before the tournament... Folks counted him out before the match with Carlos. Carlos was seen as a heavy favorite by a lot of folks, which to me was shocking. And as that match turned out in that semifinal, doubly shocking. (laughs) Because, Mm -hmm. wow, what a moment of discredit. (laughs) We're going to talk about cramping later, and it, it may or may not change your mind. Carlos has suffered from cramping in a few high-profile matches. And, you know, we hope it doesn't continue to be a problem, but it wasn't even that far into the match against Djokovic that this cropped up. Hmm. I just checked my BodyServe Fantasy League on the TNNS app, and it says that I was ninth for the tournament. Are you serious? Yeah, when you go on the league... It gives you, I guess, an average of the two of your performance in the men and the women. Okay. And so my average is that I was ninth, which I will take um, every day of the week. Okay. It looks like I was 91st. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I I got to tell you, I did not I did not check this at all during the tournament. I don't know why we... Like, I hope people have fun doing the brackets because I do not. What were your individual point scores? I don't know. How do I find the, it? Men's and the women. In, I tied for 89th for the women. That's because I picked the finalists to lose in the first round. Stupidly. And 81st in the men. What were your individual scores? Uh, 106 points, I guess. In what? In the men's. In the men's you had 106. I had 126. Okay. And I finished 22nd. And then in the women's I got 89 points. In the women, I got 126 points and finished 8th. Okay, I don't even know what this means. I do know that in the women's, I guessed less than half of the matches correctly. That's not good. No. Not great. I was a stone's throw from picking the finalists on the women's side. I wanted to pick Muhova over Zhang (laughs) Qinwen. Yeah, you know, it was a big swing. We've got to take big (laughs) swings in these. And then I was like... You know, on the preview episode, I said something to the effect of, well, what happens when Zhang Qinwen just decides that this is her time? And I was like, wow, I would look so prophetic if mm-hmm. I backed this up. And instead you look pathetic. Terrible. <laughs> okay, uh, we have to talk about the, both the men and the women. I would like to keep the men's part short. And I know this is very, it's not balanced. It's not objective. I just don't want to talk about it i just don't care we had so many people in response to us saying we're going to record monday evening requesting 
to skip the men altogether. <laughs> okay. I guess we have a well cultivated audience. Yes, let me say it first because I don't want to be considered like the worst hater in tennis. Novak uh, has won twenty three Slam singles titles. He makes it look easy. He makes his opponents look slow, tired, useless, and sometimes they are. For being totally honest, uh, he is useless. He's uh, a master at his craft. There's absolutely no denying it. I'm not. I'm not spreading any fake news here. However, does winning this tournament change the narrative about goat status? I don't think so beating a cramping player in the semifinals. Casper showed up for a set and then wasn't really a factor for the rest of the match. And this is what happens with dominant players. I mean, Djokovic can grind you down and make you look like you're not really trying. But I think a lot of these players just, they're not stepping up. And if we're being totally honest, the field, it's not that great. Mm. Well, we were told, and we told y'all at some point, too, we bought into that, that It was the big three, sure, all those guys. And then Carlos was a cut above the next that are coming. And so I guess folks were looking to this tournament to be the evidence of that. Right. And the what we saw on court in that semifinal was the complete opposite. And like there's no doubt that Carlos is an incredible talent. A lot of players get past this cramping as they get older. It may not be a a chronic thing. It was surely a disappointing semifinal. People were expecting a classic. And it almost, sometimes I enjoy, because I I really don't like being beaten over the head with things. Like, you are required to like this or you don't like tennis. I hate that shit, as you know. If you you can't find the enjoyment in watching so-and-so play, then... You're dead inside. You, <laughs> right. you are not a fan of tennis. Yeah. And like, so I'm done trying to prove that I'm a fan or that I love tennis or whatever. I like watching Carlos play. Is he my favorite player on tour? No. Is that a crime? Right. But it, we don't need to be giving all these caveats anymore when talking about Djokovic. If you've listened to the podcast for any extended period of time, let alone pandemic onward, you know the reasons why we don't fuck with that guy. Period. Right. That's not going to change. His behavior gets just this worse. Week. Just this week. It g- continues to degenerate. Right. So you see a lot of otherwise reasonable tennis reporters saying, talking about the many adversities he's overcome, and then just like slipping in quietly the adversities that he himself caused, as if though they were all equal. It's a constant quest to just be able to talk about him under the narrative that they want to talk about him under the convention of well this guy statistically has the most this that the other and so we must talk about him in this way and and necessarily those statistics must brush all those other shortcomings and misgivings under the rug no we don't do that among reporters it's like the rush to be first and the most superlative so it's like oh (sighs) I knew he was the GOAT in 2012. Just like, can we just watch the match and see what happens? <laughs> you know? I just thought of a new title. What? The Next Degeneration. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, God. Well, speaking of, I mean, <laughs> so we've heard about this supposed new big three. I almost choked when I heard who was in it. So Carlos, yes, definitely. Uh-huh. But the other big part of the big three is Runa and Sinner. What? 
Rona, who got beaten incredibly badly by Casper Ruud and who has not proved his fitness in five set matches. Sinner, why? We've spoken enough about Sinner in the I past mean, few weeks. He's made semifinals. He's played the best players some in highly competitive matches. He's beaten Carlos a few times, but why, how how is this the new big three? We don't need to have a new big three. Right. I'm just saying, like, you had this this lineup in the quarterfinals that looked really good. And then it was just, like, flop after flop. The entire men's draw was flop after flop after flop. I mean, Zverev, that came close to a tank against Rude. That was a pathetic performance. Well, he says, though he doesn't want to talk about it because he doesn't want to take away from Casper, he was injured. Uh, okay, fine. It was still pathetic. He's not somebody I'm ever inclined to believe is telling the truth, but... It was delicious. It was a delicious result. Delicious. <laughs> we were talking the other day. At, I've, I've always found it hard to like put my emotions to the side and not be a hater when the player I wanted to win doesn't win. So we'll talk about it again during the women's stuff. But ooh, ooh, You're going to go there. I find it so difficult to just turn that off and, and and talk about Djokovic in an objective way because I just want to be a hater. Right. And for me, I'm in fully, I'm in my embrace, my don't give a fuck era because <laughs> right. I'm, I refuse at my big age and after having done this for so long to get worked up about this stuff. Like 23, five years ago, I would have been disgusted. No, I don't care. I don't, I don't care. Like this is, this is our sport. This is our goat, uh, and people will say, "Oh, you're just you're just mad because he passed Rafa." Honestly, I never ever expected Rafa to get to 22. I never did. Did I, I even expect Rafa to get care. to 17? Like, I do not care if if Rafa never passed Roger. Like, it would have been okay. I have moved on with my life. I just don't like the guy. Period. The point is, <laughs> this 23, 22, 20 business. Was totally unforeseen. Nobody saw this coming. Federer coming back in 2017 mm-hmm. and winning more? Madness. Right. Rafa coming back and winning an Australian and Open a, from a two sets to love down, winning m- multiple more US yeah. Opens? No. Who saw this? And so we're at a point now where Djokovic, the most able-bodied of them all, he's going to keep winning. He's like barely showed any impact of his age. These guys are barely putting up a fight against him. He will go into Wimbledon. I mean, who's stopping him there unless he gets injured? No, the, Nobody the is calendar year Grand Slam is on the table. It is, of squarely. course. And of course, the U.S. Open is his toughest major. But still, my issue with men's tennis right now is who is stopping him? He's 36 years old. Yes, he's the greatest. He looks to be in great shape. But but see, I don't even he's know. He's supposedly injured. You know, in the first set... Of the final, Twitter is like, oh, Novak is gassed. Like, do you hear yourselves? Do you Have you ever watched this man play a Grand Slam final? You think he's gassed in the first 20 minutes? <laughs> I mean, I like, I lost, I had to get off. Like, I didn't even want to watch the match at that point, that point. This is what he does, okay? He may feel gassed, right? But we've also seen him play with opponents before. He done, did it to Andy Murray in the Australian Open. Okay. I've heard you say many times now that he is the GOAT, he is the best on this show. <laughs> and I don't I don't even know that that's necessarily true. Statistically, mm. 
he will be the best at the end of the day. But yes. all these guys played through varying stretches of injuries where one had a clearer path to the rest of the field, the rest of the minions on the ATP tour. Federer had a huge head start at the start of his career, still won some at the back end of his career. This is a purple patch era for Novak because, let's face it... <laughs> I mean, if if you're going to discount Federer's early dominance because of the level of competition, we have to be serious and say and say this is the weakest competition Novak has ever faced. Right. So my point is, it continues to be an uninteresting debate for me. Right. right. Because all arguments that are made are done in a self-serving way, depending on which fandom you belong to. Right. And the way to rise above that is to rely on, well, let's go blanketly with statistics. Now, Novak has those statistics. So if that's what you want to do, I won't sit here and argue with that and discredit that. Those numbers are there. It's a prism through which many athletes have been revered, judged across all sports, the most in your field, Mm -hmm. right? I just think that there is more to it with these three particular men. Right. And as such, I'm not interested in the debate. (laughs) Oh, okay. Uh, And that's the final word on that. I tasked you with researching cramping because of this semifinal with Alcaraz and Djokovic. Right. And I sat there watching that match in disbelief that after two sets and a little over two hours, after having just won the second set to square the match, that this just all went to shit in a handbasket. Is that the expression? Hell in a handbasket. Hell in a (laughs) handbasket. And then to recall that this happened to him against Sinner in Miami not more than three short weeks ago. (laughs) Right. And... Myself and a lot of the viewers are sitting there like, what is going on? And then we're fed these, what sound like non-scientific terms by Jim Courier, by John Wertheim, talking about, quote, nervous cramps, nervousness cramps and dehydration cramps. (laughs) And they're two different kinds. And while they're both difficult to overcome in the moment, one is more likely or possible for you to overcome than the other. And let's try and pinpoint which one it is that Carlos has based on how he's moving. And the the whole thing just seemed like a total mess. I'm here to tell you that there is a lot of misinformation in that. So you did your homework. I did. Another thing I wanted to know was, is this bollocks? And as such, (laughs) is the rule against getting medical attention because of cramping seen as a loss of physical conditioning unfair? Right. So first of all, cramping is not considered an injury because there's no trauma. It's a it's a condition that happens and it's unfortunate, but there's nothing that you did on court. You didn't fall and sprain your ankle, you didn't bash your face, you know, it doesn't get a timeout because it's not considered an injury. They call it a loss of conditioning. And I think that when we call it a loss of conditioning, it Uh, shifts the blame to the player. Like we assume that, well, it's the player's fault and that therefore they can't get any medical treatment. And the thing is, the causes of cramping is poorly, are poorly understood still. Scientists are studying it. Not just poorly understood by non-scientific people, by the scientific community itself. Doctors and scientists, like they're still trying to fully understand what causes cramping. But 
the idea of like nervousness cramps or that like feelings of nervousness cause cramps there's not really scientific evidence for that there was a, a story in tennis majors um, oh no we're not doing that no I, that relied on uh, you know the source was a physiotherapist and the headline talked about cramps are uh, like a nervous issue rather than a physical issue in English the way that we use nervous is generally colloquially sorry not colloquially but more figurative nervous is an emotion when you can say that it is a nervous system problem and you would be probably correct but there's no evidence to say when I'm nervous or when I'm feeling anxious, I get cramps. Okay. Well, when this is being talked about on air, I think a lot of folks can relate to it, even if you're not an athlete. Yes. Where in moments of great anxiety in your life, your body just locks up. That whole idea of your legs become jelly all of a sudden and you can't really walk. Sure. Yeah. You, your body has some kind of response to uh, a heightened event in your life or your experience yeah and so why is it a stretch that that could happen to an athlete who is trying to perform these great physical feats while also possibly feeling those feelings as well yeah okay there there are a few uh kind of mechanisms that scientists point to one is we've heard the dehydration thing but it is like a little more complicated than that it could be a water and electrolyte imbalance that causes it so you'll see people being treated with salt tablets or some kind of saline uh, Those liquid. little squeeze gel things. Right, right. And that sometimes can have an immediate effect. There's also this theory called altered neuromuscular control theory. And what that means is muscle fatigue might be causing imbalance in the way that the nervous system communicates with your muscle receptors. Scientifically, it's called abnormal spinal reflex activity secondary to fatigue of the affected muscles. Poor conditioning can be a factor in this, but it's not entirely fair to say that cramping is always a loss of conditioning. There are instances where athletes will cramp because maybe they trained in cooler temperatures and now they're overexerting in hot, hot temperatures, but that's not always the case. The thing is, cramping is unpredictable. Scientists don't have a full understanding of what causes it, and there's no prevention strategy or treatment that has been proven consistently effective. The human body is a, is a weird thing. It's unique to everybody. So one person may be susceptible to cramping, even if they're fully fit, they train correctly, they're stretching before matches. Sometimes it just happens. So when I'm sitting there watching this match, and I'm tempted to think... Wow, this is such a colossal lack of preparation on the part of Carlos's team to have gone through that in Miami and then still be in this position again just a couple months later. Mm -hmm. am, am I then being unfair in thinking that? I think you're being presumptive. What about the other thought that, fine, this is not something he can control at this stage of his career, but his response to it certainly is. Because the other part of watching that unfold was... He didn't seem to be drinking anything. He didn't seem to be taking in any fluids. He didn't seem to be yeah. actively responding to what was going on to try and make the situation better. Given that he had just gone through it. The whole thing was completely perplexing and wrapped up in this vortex of frustration. We have this mm -hmm. huge top billing match. The first time they've ever met in this kind of scenario with potential history on the line, and this is how it goes down? 
it was completely defeating to watch. Yeah. I think it was it was frustrating because it felt like his team didn't give him the tools to to handle this in the moment. And of course, it's such a stressful and devastating thing to have happen in the middle of this match where you have a real chance. You've won the second set. But no, like I there are some things like some studies say that immediate stretching can alleviate the symptoms. Of course, like the saline uh, tablets or solution or whatever. But it's possible that you cramp and you never recover within a match. But it it felt like he was not armed with any of those intervention techniques to be able to manage it mid-match. It showed a lack of experience. It showed the complete opposite of what is his biggest strength in his game. The the youthful exuberance, the caution to the wind. And, Here, it seemed body. like a lack of preparation and deliberateness mm. kind of under, un- so, undercut him. So I think you are not hearing the science. That's what I think. <laughs> I think the point is we we cannot sit on the sidelines and say this is what caused Carlos's cramping. Nobody can. Jim Courier can't. Nobody can. No, I've accepted that. I'm saying I'm focusing on the response to it in the moment now. Okay. Because that felt amateur to me. Like we forget how young he is because he's performed so well. But his body is what elevates his great hands and, and his brain and all those physical gifts he has. Like his body is not like his peers. It's better, right? That's why he's better. And this moment showed, wow, that thing can really betray you in a in a big moment. So is that all your homework done? The assignment's complete? That's it. I mean, you had me reading scientific articles and stuff. I don't read science. That's not my bag. Well, this week it was. Yeah, but I am here to say, let's let's not talk about... Uh, nervous cramping in a, in a real scientific way. One more thing before we move on. Mm-hmm. We cannot talk about this men's draw without talking about Kaspar Ruud. Yes. This was a guy who looked, he looked a shadow of himself. The narrative surrounding, well, he looked a shadow of himself this year, yeah. right? And the narrative surrounding him and his great 2022 season was that he overperformed. He overperformed his talent this dude somehow made two slam finals and, well, we just really shouldn't expect him to do it again. And th- here he is. He made the final of the French Open. He backed up that result from last year, defended all those points. Instead of plummeting down the rankings, he's, he remains at number four. And he deserves an enshrinement in the Body Serve Hall of Fame for his win in that semifinal against that guy. <laughs> Honestly, after the quarterfinal and the semifinal, I was pretty much poised to stand Casper. I really enjoyed watching him. Of course, I've watched him before, but I never kind of, I guess I never really believed it. Uh, but this is his third major final. The the ra- The book on him was like that he couldn't win uh, big titles. And he still doesn't have a big title. But again, like three runner-up finishes and slams. You know who doesn't have that? Uh, Tsitsipas, Runa... Rublev, Sinner, you know, the new big guys or whatever. They don't have that. Kasper's overlooked in this conversation. Right. It's unfortunate for him, though, that he's had to play those guys in the finals. Yes. He's had to play Carlos. He's had to play Rafa. And he's had to play Djokovic. Mm -hmm. He's never won a set off Novak or Rafa. 
And so that continues, that narrative continues, but he's still putting himself in position to win. That photo of him after losing the first set in that final, where he's just sitting looking forlorn in his chair, shirtless, hang it in my living room. (laughs) (laughs) You like the sad boy aesthetic? I enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. All right. To put a wrap on the men's event, 23 for Djokovic. Three times now he's won each of the slams at a minimum. Mm-hmm. What do you call that? A triple a career, career grand, grand slam. slam. Uh, TB12 was back in at his number box. one. Back at number one. That's another thing that happened. Okay, great. Anyway, TB12 and Yelena Djokovic. Uh, what do you think they were talking about? Five um, G. Uh. <laughs> like I would pay not to know what they were talking about. <sighs> I wonder what circles they run in. For that to happen. I think we know. At this point, I'm surprised Aaron Rodgers wasn't there. On the women's side, we had a surprise finalist, but a finalist that pleased damn near everybody in tennis. Karolina Muhova playing Iga Sviantek for the Roland Garros title. And at a set and three love up, it looked like a par for the course (laughs) in any kind of final against Iga Sviantek. And... Carolina found her way back. Wow. It was, a, it was a great final. And as I said before, it's so hard for me to enjoy these things in the moment. Sometimes when the person I wanted to win doesn't win. And I like I can't even tweet for a day after because I don't want to disrespect the other person. I really don't. But I was not happy. You were really <laughs> nasty to me because for years now on this podcast, I have been championing Carolina Muhova. And I've been known as somebody yet, who is a fan. And, and yet, yet I found myself in that final, not even th- consciously, but just an emotional body reaction, rooting for Iga to win. Mm-hmm. I think you should look inside. Because I don't like that. You always talk about how you don't like the dominant players. I understand. I understand. It is what it was. <laughs> anyway, there's nothing wrong with Iga. Like, I'm not, I'm not an Iga hater at all. No, but, but it's clear at this point you're not an Iga lover. That much is clear to me, at least. I'm I'm not a stan, but that's not because like I object to her. It's just like other people move my spirit more. Mm-hmm. You know, you think that there's like some unfair play going on there with her at times. We've we're not going to talk about this again. We talked about it last year at the U.S. Open. No. It's not that big a deal. Like, the thing is, her opponents have said it's it's not really a big deal to them, so it's I'm done with it. But Mukhova's run was just so inspiring and incredible to watch. Like, had she won from... that... <laughs> had she won that final, it would have been one of the greatest slam runs. Really? Period. Starting off against Sakari in the first round and beating her in straight sets. Coming back from 2-5, 30-40 down in the semifinal in that third set against Sabalenka and winning the last five games. Coming and... back against being... Heavily down against the freight train steam engine Sviantek in a slam final to push it to 6-4 in the third. Like, mm. this was a banner event for Karolina Muhova. In an incredible competitor, absolutely beautiful to watch. And that, you hear that all the time, but it is just, for me, so cool to watch Muhova play tennis. Big serve, beautiful backhand. She moves incredibly well. Like, she's looking to come to the net. These textbook volleys on clay. And there's just so much creativity to the way she plays, but it feels 
contained. Right, but the, the shot that t- almost turned that final on its head was the forehand down the line. Like a bullet mm. from a gun. <laughs> on the run. Craziness. That was my favorite shot to watch in that final. And I feel like we do a disservice to the totality of her game by just relying on her variety. She has serious power. Yes. When she yes. needs to. The same way that I think people look past Iga's speed as a weapon, um, you know, we tend to reduce a player to the one aspect. Carolina's variety, for example. Iga is one of the quickest players out there. She covers the court incredibly well. And then, like, <laughs> and then she can do all that on both sides. I think Iga's biggest asset is her footwork. Not just her speed, mm. her footwork, what she does on a, a tennis court to get herself into position. Nobody's doing it like her. Right. Period. This final was so exciting. And to me, like, I, of course, I wanted Mukhova to win, but Iga's just head and shoulders above everybody on clay. It makes sense that she's won her third Rolling Arrows title. And I just wanted to see her fight. I wanted to see her challenged. And we saw that. Like, we saw somebody look at Iga down a set and uh, three love, right? And say, I think I can still do this. And she wasn't that far away. She was up a break twice in the third set. Carolina showed that Iga is not unbeatable here. She didn't beat her, of course. But And I think uh, Iga showed some nervousness in the second set. She started making errors. But in the third set, when Carolina started with a break at love, then a hold at love, including two aces to finish the game, Iga didn't back down, right? Like, her nervousness sort of seemed to dissipate and she started fighting and I gotta respect that like I, I wanted a different outcome but I really respect the way that she played that match there was this uh Mukhova origin story going around on Twitter uh Diego Barbiani shared it and uh, it was from uh, a story from isport.cz like a, a Czech sport website did you just in- say Z? Z. 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 Wow. we're in Canada wow. I'm saying Z. Uh, back in 2019, when Lucy Safasheva was about to retire, the Prague Open wanted to give her a wild card, and it would have been, like, her farewell. Uh, but she felt that she wasn't in shape, like she was injured, and she wanted this wild card to go to Karolina Mukhova, who at the time was ranked 106. But Karolina uh, impressed her in Fed Cup. So Mukhova got the wild card. She beats the qualifier, Iga Shriantek in round one oh and then reached the final her first wta final lost to jill teichman and all of this kind of set her on course it it raised her ranking it guaranteed her a place in the wimbledon main draw and that's where she reached her first slam quarterfinal just another story about how generous and kind Savajava is like you hear so many stories about this but here we are like we're full circle muhava beat her on clay four years ago and now Iga Svantec is the best player in the world. But not by much in the WTA right. rankings. Right. Because the number one ranking was in play big time at this tournament. It was. If Arena Sabalenka made it one round further than Iga, she would have taken the number one ranking. If they had met in the final and Sabalenka won, again, she would have become number one. Sabalenka had a pretty interesting role in Garros, wouldn't you say? Mm-hmm. She reached Didn't the semifinals. She? I mean, she looked to be in pretty dominant form for most of it, but up 5-2 to 
against Mukhova, I it just has to be seen as kind of a choke. It absolutely was a choke. Yeah, and I don't I don't like to use that word, but it was shocking. Before we get into that, to wrap up what Iga has done here, this was her 14th WTA title, her fourth slam. She's 14 and 4 in WTA finals. Would you hazard a guess as to the four women who've beaten her in a WTA final <laughs> event? Uh, Polona Herzog. How do you know that? <laughs> Remember, it's like a trivia question at That's this point. That's her very first final. Yep. Uh, Barbora Krejcikova. Correct. That's the second and one, October 2022. Yeah. Arena um, Sabalenka. Arena Sabalenka is the other person. Barbora has done it twice. Yes. Okay. Barbara did it in Ostrava, Ostrava last year, again this year in Dubai, mm-hmm. and then in Madrid this year, Sabalenka beat her. I got them all. You did. I'm actually very impressed. <laughs> that Polona Herzog one I pulled out of my mm-hmm. hat. Huh? I remember uh, at Coco Goff's breakout Wimbledon, she played Herzog as well. Speaking of Coco Goff, that's where Iga's tournament really ramped up. In the quarterfinals, <laughs> playing Coco Goff, again, a straight sets win, 6-4, 6-2. In the semifinals, Iga had a stern test, straight sets, but a stern second set test against Bia Hadadmaya. Yeah, over two hours in straight sets. She threw everything in the kitchen sink at Iga in that second set. The quarterfinal lineup was excellent. We got a, a rematch of the final in Sviantek Goff, uh, Hadadmaya Jabor. Beatriz had never made it, what, past the third round of a major? And here she is... Uh, making the semifinals, knocking out Anshabor, one of the most talented players on clay. Mulhova versus Pavlyuchenkova, runner-up two years ago. Very unlikely that she went this far. And then Svitolina Sabalenka. Again, Svitolina in one of her first tournaments since coming back from maternity leave, mm-hmm. having won Strasbourg. And this is where... This is where we'll, we'll break off we'll into the Sabalenka portion of the episode. We recorded our mailbag episode that we're going to release while we're on the road. We did that on Thursday. So that's already in the can. And it'll be out in like a week or a little over a week. Mm -hmm. Right? We got a lot of questions about Sabalenka. A lot of questions about this French Open with respect to the woman's side. Svitolina, Sabalenka, the whole nine yards. You you watched it, right? So we, we did not use those questions for the mailbag episode. And instead, we're going to insert them here into this agenda mm-hmm, mm-hmm. let's first talk about the uh the incident at the end of the sabalenka svitolina quarterfinal this went viral like everything did about sabalenka this tournament arena went to the net as you do after a match but knowing that svitolina would not shake her hand so a lot of people were very upset they felt it was a provocation because of course svitolina then got booed because mm-hmm. Sabalenka's at the net Svitolina ignores her and goes to the umpire. This after Sabalenka had gone through the whole quote-unquote ordeal and the blowback of participating in an altered press situation. Right. This is after Dasha Kazatkina showed us the blueprint of how to handle this as a Russian player. Thumbs up. She walked over, she acknowledged her opponent, she gave a thumbs up, she knew a handshake wasn't coming, but she paid a lot of respect. Alina Svitolina did not, she did not miss it. <laughs> she said in press, my initial reaction was like, what are you doing? Because in all my press conferences, I've made my position clear. And then she goes on to say, I made multiple statements that I'm not shaking hands. 
and she played Marta as well in the first round, so it's quite simple. Arena was asked about it, and we'll talk about the press situation in a moment. She said, I don't know, it just was an instinct like I always do after all my matches. And I don't know. I, I'm not in her head. I don't know what it was. Right, uh, but it's becoming way more difficult to give her the benefit of these doubts. Right. We were so measured, so measured on our last episode when talking about Sabalenka. I tried like, to We be. could have gone off, right? But I saw this and I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Everything <laughs> subsequent to that has been worse and worse. She then goes to Instagram. Roland Garros shared a photo set of Arena's win. It says Sabalenka moves on. And then some guy named John Russo Photo comments, The level of disrespect from Ukrainian players is shocking. This only makes them look bad and sends the wrong message. It's not a political arena. It's a tennis arena. Bravo, Sabalenka Arena for always being a class act. Uh, dot, 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 dot. And Arena responded with three hearts. Like, what are you doing? I understand this guy complimented you, but you just reacted to a post that said the level of disrespect from Ukrainian players is shocking. What are you doing? This after she acknowledged that she didn't expect anything different from Kostyuk in the first round. Mm -hmm. So now it's, we're supposed to practice this willing suspension of disbelief that it just slipped her in. It slipped her mind in the moment. All of a sudden... Everything that has informed her Roland Garros experience to date has gone out the window. And she ju it just slipped her mind. So we'll get to a couple of those questions now. Dr. Mop submitted, Maybe y'all don't want to get into it, but your takes on the Sabalenka et al. political situation. I'm a fan of Arena and want to stay a fan, but how does one integrate slash evaluate when the private and public personas of our quote-unquote idols are so disparate? That is a good question. I mean, this is a question of our age, isn't it? Like support, uh, separating the art from the artist. No matter how much I want to think myself above these things, we create parasocial relationships with people we don't know. Like that's just the reality of being online in this day and age, for being a sports fan, for basically seeing a famous person craft a presentation of themselves for the public. We don't know who they are. Like, we don't call them at home. It's fun to follow a player throughout the course of a tennis season. And then those tennis seasons spill on to future tennis seasons. And you get to follow the career trajectory of these players. See them develop, get better. See them move past prior struggles, improve, and get better. And we've talked about it. We've had our decades-long faves. And they're mostly all gone now. And mm. what are we going to do as fans of tennis going forward if we don't have somebody else to stand? Who are we going to stand next? We've had those discussions on the show. Okay. And so I can imagine how when you find somebody and you commit a year or two to following them and you think you're at a place where I'm so glad I have this person now I can just sit back, plan my schedules around when they're playing and not think too much about it and just enjoy it. And then something happens <laughs> to, up, to, to upend that. And that's where that conflict, that internal conflict comes in. Yeah. And I talk to so many people who are like more casual fans of tennis and they find out, oh, that guy did that. 
that guy's being taken up to court for domestic abuse jesus and it's like uh, every time i want to support someone this shit comes out about them and so i don't know like we're none of us is immune to this i guess you set up standards for yourself about the things that you will tolerate for example i would never support an athlete who supported ron DeSantis. Uh, or said things that were openly racist or homophobic. I draw the line there. But have my faves said or done things that have been objectionable to me? Of course. Rafa has said things that I found sexist. Uh, Serena has said some... (laughs) The shocking things she said about the Steubenville rape survivors. That was really bad. Some of the associations that Venus Williams has. Right. And so I guess I've decided that none of those things is big enough for me to stop standing. But there have been. And we've also just lived through the last three years where the most public example of this is how Novak Djokovic made his way through a COVID world. From being a vaccine denier to trying to play Australia under the cover of night. (laughs) All those things. And we saw very publicly a lot of Djokovic fans try to come to terms with that. Some jumped ship. Some Mm -hmm. wrote very public paragraphs, essays. About kind of the moral dilemma they were in. And some have come right back on board afterward. Is it just a matter of taking a break? Taking a time out? Do you care what other people think about your fandom? You know, like, these are all things you have to Mm. consider. And for some people, it radicalized them further. Mm. This is what happens. Oh, it sure did. There are a few people who were fans of the show back in, like, 2015, 2016. And then you somehow happen upon their Twitter page in 2021. And it's like, what happened? I mean, we've not related to us, but we've seen fans of certain people become, like, full-blown conspiracy theorists. Anyway, I'm not going to get into it, you know, (laughs) but I don't know the answer. I don't know if it's like, is it the chicken or the egg? It's, I never really responded to Novak because of what I knew about him. And therefore I wasn't a fan when he did the whole anti-vax thing. So it's, I didn't have to reckon with it. Um, If I had been a huge fan, would it have changed my opinion? I don't know. Like, well, who knows? I didn't live through it. I I would hope so. But fandom as it exists and standom as it exists on that heightened level is a little bit different from trying to stay on board the Sabalenka train. Okay, fair With, with those considerations. Yeah, 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 yeah. With Arena, I think, I don't know. You have to use your best judgment. <laughs> on the last episode, I talked about how I don't know even that she's guilty of anything. Like, I didn't want to assign guilt in something I didn't fully understand. Like, I don't know her heart, Right. But if you're seeing this evidence mounting and you object to her behavior, then, like, that's your prerogative. Initially at this tournament, she refused to answer questions about the war, saying that she had already spoken on that. And then she didn't go to traditional press. This makeshift press situation was set up for her. Eventually she comes back to press and she answers a direct question about the war and Lukashenko. She says, quote, I'm not supporting war. I don't want my country to be involved in any conflict. I said it many times, and you know where I stand. You know. You have my position. You have my answer. I answered it many times. 
I'm not supporting the war. I don't support war, meaning I don't support Lukashenko right now. But that was the most unequivocal she's been. It was, but that right now at the end did a lot of heavy lifting. Sure, but she was asked many times, do you support the war? And said, no athletes support the war. You've asked me a million times. My thoughts are on the record. This, to me, was the most straightforward she's been. We got another question about this. This was from Human, Not AI. Will Arena's no press strategy continue? What's the end game there? In particular, that it's very probable she will be number one. If not, you know, during this tournament, possibly shortly after. She's still close, of course, to number one. The responsibilities are different. So she did this makeshift, like you said, this press engagement. We were told that it was with reporters handpicked by the tournament. It was reported that it was actually just with one WTA representative. So it was a PR exercise. Uh, There was a lot of, you know, Alina Svitolina asked publicly, why was Naomi Osaka fined for skipping press? And this is okay. I would ask the same thing. Again, I said on the last episode, I hope that that means the French Federation has made progress. Mm -hmm. But I don't think, I actually don't think they have. Right, but if we're being charitable, this is what progress looks like. Right, right. And we talk about this all the time. People who are resentful of people who've come after them, reaping the benefits of new policies that they themselves weren't able to benefit from and and thus struggled, right? Mm-hmm. We see it with student loan forgiveness. <laughs> right. And we- of course, it's inherently unfair. Mm-hmm. Yes, you were treated unjustly. But you hope that in the future, someone else is treated better. We see it with a lot of elder gays. Absolutely. Back in my day, mm-hmm. we couldn't do, we did, we did our struggle, this, that, yes. And it is incumbent on us to honor the struggle of our ancestors. Right. But it's also incumbent on them to be grateful for progress. That they, they suffered and it was deeply unjust, but future generations shouldn't have to. So in a in a much smaller version of this, Naomi had to do this uh, this ritualistic act of disclosure and confession and say, I have depression and I have mental health problems. And the way that you reacted to me was really fucked up, which it was. And of course, Naomi would never say it like that. Uh, have have the Grand Slam bodies lightened their approach when someone says they are having mental health issues and they need to back off a press? Maybe. I hope so. And these are not the same things. No, no. Right, but the slam and tournament approach to players should be more blanketed than just one specific thing that Naomi Osaka dealt with. Right. Right? And we don't know what the the behind-the-scenes negotiations were to make this happen. Like, maybe the WTA was heavily involved. Maybe maybe it was the FFT. Who knows? (laughs) Right. The WTA uh, clearly has... A conundrum on their hands, a, a PR challenge, I would say, with what happened with Sabalenka at this tournament. To answer your question, she did come back to press. Obviously, we saw it. She she talked about the Svitolina match, the handshake controversy, and she said, I do not support Lukashenko right now. When for a lot of people, supporting him at any point would have been a problem, <laughs> would have been a deal breaker, right? Yeah. Which is why I said that right now does a lot of heavy lifting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway... There was one more question about this. This is from Damien. And 
he asks, where do you land on players having an obligation to speak up on issues like war or political issues that are current but don't involve countries at war? Uh, LGBTQIA plus representation, for example. Obviously, sport is political, but should we in all instances hold players accountable for failing to take a clear stance on events slash wars that involve their countries? At what point do players stop getting our grace? And at what point do we begin to expect them to have a voice? It's a complex question. And I want to start by saying the playing field will never be equal. So players who come from Western powers, from G7, from the UK, the US, they will never be held to the same standard as players from Russia, from the global south, any of that. We are insulated because we are world superpowers. We're the tennis powers. We control the strings, everything. So when the US invades Iraq or Afghanistan, American players are not held responsible for it. They're just not going to be. And that's that's the honest truth. But do I think that players should have to answer for that? Yeah, I actually I think they should. Or even if it's not that they should be made to answer for it, is it a problem if they are asked? Right. Because this question operates or exists against this current cultural backdrop of these questions being gotcha questions. And mm. while, yes, it is a, a known fact that inherently the current state of journalism is for clicks, by and large. Right. And right. so there's no getting away from that. And a natural byproduct of asking these types of questions is that responses and the subsequent headlines that are generated will get clicks. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that players should or shouldn't be asked, in my right. opinion. You know, it, for me, it's... It's just part of the process. Yeah. I, you know, the the Yahoo Sports, the tennis worlds, the I won't list them all, they are going to misrepresent what you say, regardless of what you say. So for top players, I would recommend they get a really good agent and PR representative to essentially craft their answer. Or just start reading books. Sure, that you know? too. Yeah, you know, if you're it's inclined. It's always good to, to educate yourself, be a more worldly person, to yeah. know what's going on around you. And some players will definitely do that. But for the players who are not interested in politics and feel it's unfair they're being asked this question, just get really good advice. Or if you're Stefano Tsitsipas, just ask ChatGPT. <laughs> that was so good. Oh my God. Stefanos using... AI to send a congratulatory message to Novak. It's giving like, I know I should say something, but I also don't really care that much. Well, he was busy. He didn't have time to actually <laughs> sit down and do it. Literally. Because he's in the midst of a whirlwind social media he romance. Was, he was in the pool. He was dancing. He was in the gym. He was in a Greek restaurant. He was breaking plates. <laughs> so to answer your question, I don't know if it answered your question. I tend to believe that the personal is political and vice versa. Like, I, I actually do care about players' thoughts and feelings about this stuff. Uh, I Yes, it is inherently unfair. But uh, I don't think it's unfair to ask the question. Especially when one of the tenets of this show in particular is that sport is necessarily not free from politics. Right. 
And going back to one of the previous questions, you I guess you have to like create your own standards for what what you'll tolerate and built in is like the understanding that people are human and sometimes say things that you don't agree with and sometimes they say things that they regret and we have to have a level of forgiveness for that stuff you kind of decide what you're willing to forgive sometimes you give them more leeway to say well i'm not gonna take a firm stance right now see how it plays out until they give you the unequivocal response right now Mm -hmm. And then you make a decision. I like, I tend Did to you get give... it right now. Oh, no. Sabalenka. Oh, oh, I got it. Mm, okay. I didn't, sorry, I did not get it. Mm. Really threading the needle there. I tend to give less leeway, I guess, to people like me, to like white American men. I give them no, no leeway at all. Okay. Because I think in general, other people have never been given that benefit of the doubt. So I give it to those people instead. Also, it's important to try and pay attention to when people are operating in good faith. Yeah. Because it's fine if you don't have all the answers, but that just means that you take steps to engage legitimately. Instead, you have people whose responses are, well, you should educate me then. If I don't know this, you need to tell me. And then even if you do, then it's undercut at every step. You know what I mean? Mm, like yeah, you, yeah. At this point, unless you're just graduating high school... You should be able to tell when somebody's operating in good faith yeah, with you. Yeah. And so that's where we are with interacting on social media right now. Like, we basically do not respond to anything on Twitter. No. I, they always say, what was this? was like a Mark Twain quote about, like, arguing with fools. Uh, you know, it just, like, brings you down into the dirt when you argue with someone who's not, who's, who's operating in bad faith and just wants to dunk on you and whatever. Like, that's, dunk on me. <laughs> that's okay. You can do that on your own. Because I'm not participating. Mm. What was it? During the last couple of days, we tweeted something about how there was a graphic that showed <laughs> yes. that Novak Djokovic had broken some streak, oh, like some ha- Steffi Graf record. Had a number of stri- Grand Slam streaks of like 20 matches won, even though he didn't play the US Open last and year. And it was like the fourth mm. time he had had a streak of 20. And it's just like, come on. Like, and so... why? You know, why are we using the women's records all of a sudden? All out of nowhere, of course. Now now the women's records matter. Mm. And so somebody quote tweeted, somebody who follows us, mind you, on the Body Serve Twitter to say, but if the women's record wasn't mentioned, then you'd have had something to say about that too. And my approach is like, clearly, like you want to dunk on us, that's fine. But do your homework, maybe? Listen to the show. I mean, (laughs) that's not something that would ever concern me. No. Anyway. anyway. Okay, moving on to doubles. The big story in doubles, of course, was the default of Miyukato for hitting a ball at a ball kit. Uh, well. Well, look at what we have here. Damn. Uh, <laughs> okay. So in this match against Boskova in Cerebos Tormo, Kato was casually hitting a ball back to the ball kids. It hit the ball girl and she started crying. She was upset. A tennis ball can hurt, even if you don't think it's being hit very hard. The perceived embarrassment of the situation can cause any number of re- reactions. You know, yes. the, the focus on the crying of the ball girl, I am not here for that. Yeah, because this was not something of her doing. She was there doing her job and she did it. Nowhere in her job description is there 
for her to maintain composure when she's hit with a ball unnecessarily from a tennis player. Yes. So what we're not going to talk about is why or why not this girl cried. Like, if I'm at my job where I don't even know if they pay them. I found conflicting reports online, by the way, because Mm. I know people want to know. I don't know if they're paid at Rolling Girls, but at my job, I'm going to cry if I want to. Okay? (laughs) (laughs) So that's not a thing. The the controversy was that uh, folks on Twitter saw or they perceived Bozkova and Sariba's Tormo instigating the situation with like big snitch energy. Giving that Rafa pointing across the yes. net at Djokovic. <laughs> so the umpire apparently missed it. He missed that the ball girl was crying. The other team was like, hello, do you see what's going on here? And then Twitter just went off on that team. And it was hard for me, like, first of all, the Eurosport video was geo-blocked. So it took me days to even see the incident. Then when I saw it, it was still hard to, like, understand what happened. It certainly didn't look good for them. (laughs) Uh, But can I say that they caused a default? No. This is the umpire's job. Because even if they brought attention to it after the fact, the umpire shouldn't have missed it. Exactly. And the rules are very strict in this case. And they're very strict for a reason. Because we've seen players act reckless on court, uh, you know, very luckily avoiding hitting people. Nick Kyrgios has done it a number of times. And like Nini Leakes, he will say something like, well, did you see it? Did you see a racket hit somebody? (laughs) Did you see that ball hit somebody? Was it on tape? Nini said, if I choked someone, was it on camera? No, No, I think it's more like Donald Trump. (laughs) He will say, we know, we will say, we know what we saw and he'll tell you you didn't. (laughs) Right. So just out of sheer luck, a lot of players have reacted in rage, which Miyukatu did not do, have reacted in rage and just happened not to connect with a human being. Like this is somebody who does not have a huge profile in tennis. Somebody who has not made millions of dollars in tennis. And yet still managed to handle this situation with the utmost grace. Yeah. So I'm not prepared to say that the default was unjust because I support the rule being very strict to to prevent these things from happening. Even if it's accidental, totally unintentional, that rule is there for a reason. I think one once the umpire kind of caught up to what was happening... His hands are tied at that point. For me, the bottom line is it was unfortunate. It, it for was for many people it, yes. involved, but the decision, I'm not going to argue with it because it's there with good reason, like you said. Right. This is in the Grand Slam rulebook under the Player Code of Conduct. If you're interested, it's Article 3, Section T, <laughs> that says. The referee, in consultation with the Grand Slam Chief of Supervisors, may declare a default for either a single violation of this code or pursuant to the point penalty schedule set out above. The preceding sections list off all the different reasons you can get a code. Ball abuse is one of them. And in this case, the umpire decided that the single violation was enough for a default. And listen, like, you're protecting people on court who either volunteer or get paid to be on court. They're not getting paid to get injured at work. Um, So again, it was unfortunate. 
Kato handled the entire thing with so much, uh, just so much maturity, mm-hmm. thanking people for kind of the outpouring of support. And then look what happened just a few days later. Goes on to win the mixed doubles title. Because the really seedy part about what happened here for Soribes, Tormo, and Boscova is that they were seen to have been taking money out of people's pockets. Right. When you get defaulted in this situation, you don't just lose that match. You lose all the points and the money that you've earned at this tournament up to that point. Right. What I want to know is where does that money go now? Um, back into the uh, the bank account of the tournament. Uh. <laughs> Interesting. And <laughs> when you're looking at double specialists here, you know, that's that's really bad form. Right. So for a lot of people like this, now you've paid money to come to this tournament to earn nothing. So it's a, it's a big loss. But here she is in the final with Tim Puetz beating Bianca Andrescu and Michael Venus for the mixed doubles title. A pretty great doubles tournament for Canadians. The other result is that Leila Annie Fernandez and Taylor Townsend were the runners up in women's doubles. And who did they lose to? Back in her fourth <laughs> event, after disappearing from the tennis circuit, Shia Sue wins the women's doubles title and pockets a cool 300,000 euro plus <laughs> right. for her troubles. She wins with Wang Shiyu. This is Shia's fifth major title, her second Roland Garros title. They actually lost to Fernandez and Townsend earlier this year. In Madrid. Uh, in Madrid. Uh, well, Xie was partnering with Streetseva at the time. And this is Wong's first time past the second round in any major doubles tournament. Uh, she won two doubles majors as a junior, but this is a massive result for her mm-hmm. as a pro. After the match, Leila Fernandez was inconsolable. She was oh. very distraught. Mm-hmm. And there was Taylor Townsend to pick her up. Pumping her up. This this team is so exciting. They are so fun in press. Their sunglasses, just the way that they talk about each other. Layla said, I don't think we ever talked. We never talked to each other before we partnered. And Taylor was like, no, I never talked to her. I was like, I don't know this girl. <laughs> but you just get the feeling that Taylor is like this supportive older sister who will tell you the truth when you need to hear it. She's been through some things. Yes. Now... So, Layla has rehabbed her doubles image here then. Didn't she catch a case Oh, oh my in God. Cincinnati? At the U.S. Open. Or U.S. Open? Because the napkin. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But this team, like, look at this team. They beat the 2022 runners-up, Goff Pagula, one of the best doubles teams out there right now. Beat them pretty easily in the semifinal to reach the final. And then in men's doubles, Ivan Dodig and Austin Krychek beat the Belgian team of Ligen and Gilles, 6-3-6-1. Austin Krychek, who's an American, will actually be the number one men's doubles player for the first time. This team had championship point last year, but eventually lost to Roher and Arevalo. Yeah, and Dodig himself uh, is now a four-time champion at Roland Garros. And he had thoughts about the treatment of a four-time champion at Roland Garros. Uh, <laughs> this was in the trophy presentation. He <laughs> talked about how the, the French Federation has been treating doubles players badly. That 
he was a three-time, now four-time champion, having to take a taxi to the site every day, showing up late to his warm-ups. You know what happens when you're late to a match. Like, you could get defaulted, you know, if, if it's that serious. And then he showed an Instagram video after winning, uh, basically walking down, like, a Parisian highway, trying to avoid cars, walking back to his hotel. <laughs> uh, so let's listen to him. We got audio? No, I mean, oh, you know, okay. Listen up, guys. Uh, he was telling the truth. In juniors, I know we never talk about juniors, but this is exciting. Uh, a team of black American young women won the junior doubles title over the number one seeds, Tyra Katarina Grant and Clairvy Ngunaway. I believe that's how it's pronounced. Beat Corneva and Saito to win the uh, the junior doubles title. Corneva won the girls singles title, and uh, Clairvy Ngunaway who is, uh, she's from Washington, D.C. Her parents are Cameroonian. She's now the number one ranked junior. And uh, she also won the girls' doubles title at the Australian Open last year with Diana Schneider, who is now a successful college and professional player. Claire V is part of this up-and-coming kind of rock star class of black American players from Washington, D.C., or from the DMV area. Francis, Robin Montgomery, and now Claire V. You wanted to make a note here about the wheelchair singles result. Yeah, Roland Garros expanded its wheelchair draw this year to 16 uh, for the first time. And the Dutch player Didi de Groot wins her 10th straight major singles title and 18th major singles title overall. Uh, In the first round, she actually recorded her 100th straight match win. You'll remember that Esther Vergeer, another Dutch player, was the most dominant wheelchair player in history. Her countrywoman is potentially coming for those records. And then on the men's side, the three-time champion Alfie Hewitt from the UK lost to Tokito Oda. At 17 years old, Oda is now the youngest man to win a slam in any discipline. You mentioned Tsitsi Dosa. Uh, that's what they have, call themselves. Do, I'm, that's great. That's great branding. Uh, is it better than Gem's Life? No. God, nothing's better than that. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a great name. Uh, Tsitsi Dosa, a few people asked us to share our thoughts. I am in my 30s and gay. Late 30s. And I, uh, I'm i staying out of straight children's business. Um, good for them. I support it. If it's real. Do they need your support? <laughs> I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to hate on it. Uh, aside from the fact that it does definitely feel like a pr relationship but whatever who am i to judge i don't know what i'm supposed to think about this <laughs> the whole thing is just funny like Tsitsipas is a weird dude as it is and the rollout of this relationship has felt uh i was gonna say coordinated but it feels aggressive it's aggressive haphazard and aggressive <laughs> and one thing is for no. sure it's just all over the place It's like purposely intense, it feels like. Okay. Uh, He's a horrendous dancer. That much is clear at this point. But he's trying. (laughs) It seems like such an interesting pair to me. Because Paola, uh, at least in Breakpoint, came off as so grounded, um, smart, thoughtful. Wow, you're listing all uh, these things as being polar opposite to Tsitsipas. Yeah. And Stefanos is kind of like galaxy brain. Well, Badota is 25. And Tsitsipas, how old do you think he is? 
Isn't he? I don't know. Is he like 23? He's 24. Okay. So they're similarly aged, both in at, at the top of their respective professions. Bedosa's ranking has the gone top. down. The top? Okay. She's less accomplished. Her ranking has gone down in the last year. But they are both high-profile players. Yes. Put it that way. Definitely. Some people are speculating if this is a, a Netflix romance. <laughs> if this is to done... revive this flailing franchise. <laughs> Uh, whatever it is. You well, know, we just learned that Paula and what's his name, Juan Betancourt, that mm-hmm. they just broke up. Paula had this insanely chiseled model as her partner for years now. Right. And they're no longer together. People and, on Twitter seem to know way more about that situation than I do. Everybody said that he is consistently unemployed. Oh I don't boy. I don't get what the joke is because I don't know enough. I'm not even sure if they mean literally unemployed. It's just the <laughs> fact know. that he's always there and he's not part of her yes. team. Like he's yes. not a physio. He's not a, you know. <laughs> Maybe you're thinking that thinking that that's a, a bit too literal. Perhaps. But yeah, I'm just going to say like if they're happy, I'm happy. I want the best for everybody. If they're happy, that's their business. It's none of mine. <laughs> exactly. Any any other thoughts to wrap up? Yeah, I want to do a quick look ahead to grass. Because we're not going to have another episode, another Ooh. tennis episode, until our Wimbledon preview episode. Yeah, yeah. The next episode will be our uh, mailbag episode, and then we'll come back with the Wimbledon preview. Provided nothing crazy happens in tennis. We will take a mic with us <laughs> in case we have to do some makeshift I, recording. I swear... If somebody does something fucked up in the next two weeks, I'm going to be really, like, more mad than usual (laughs) because we're on vacation. Andy Murray just won a challenger on grass. He becomes becomes the oldest challenger winner in history. Mm -hmm. And it's a big one. It's the Serbiton Trophy. The grass season is very short, so you tend to get good draws here. Milos Raonic is back for the first time in two years, winning his first match against Ketsmanovic today easily. Throwing down aces all over the place. It seems that he may not be back for the long haul. I saw a clip really? today that he said that he wanted... He had told people, I guess privately, that he was retiring in 2021. And now he wants to play in front of his family one more time. Okay, I would like Milos to be back. I would like him to shift the wigs of some of these top players. I'm I'm all for it. I would specifically like him to draw one of the top players in the early rounds at <laughs> yes. Wimbledon and decimate them. That Yeah, okay. And uh, what else? I mean, Berrettini is losing pretty badly on grass. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's his first time back. He lost routinely today to Sonago, I believe. Yeah, 6-1, 6-2. On the women's side, I think we have a pretty exciting grass season shaping up. Sabalenka. Wimbledon final between... Karolina Muhova and Ons Jabir. Right? Like, Muhova is doing all this stuff on clay. Let's watch what she can do on grass. She has multiple uh, <laughs> quarterfinal appearances at Wimbledon. Yeah, exactly. Um, Yelena Rabakina, who is the defending champion, who's some, standing in her way. Some say that's the thing that really put the woman's draw off its axis when mm. she had to withdraw from that tournament with a viral illness. Yeah, that was a huge blow. We're also going to see... Iga Swiatek gets criticized for her performance at grass. Let's see what she comes with this year. I think this grass season will be super exciting on the women's side. And the women's side only. (laughs) (laughs) Also be prepared 
to be complaining about the surfaces, about how quickly they deteriorate, (laughs) how slow they are. We just had a women's match today go almost four hours. On grass? On grass. Oh, Lord. Oh, no. About how people get injured on this surface. Mm -hmm. About how the goats are falling on their asses on center court. You have rain delays coming back from the rain delay, checking the surface, players being uncertain. Like, you're always just one bad slip away from calamity on this surface. Yeah. In a way, it feels archaic, outdated, bad for the environment we know. (laughs) Like, why are we still doing this? Just because Wimbledon says so. Well, uh, that being said... Because it's not it's not the grass of old. This is a slow-ass surface. But so they, what are we doing but here? But they'll tell you it's the same. That being said, we will be at the grass court tournament in Berlin. <laughs> Next week, the Bet One Open. Never thought I'd go to an event called the Bet One Open, but here we are. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this will be our first uh, grass court tournament in attendance. Mm-hmm. What, we played one? No. I, What's the distinction? <laughs> they don't know us. Maybe we have. You were a junior, a top junior in <laughs> yeah, Rochester, right. New York. Yeah. Um, you were killing the, the grease circuit. Anyway, I know you're you're like a grass court hater fully, but I'm, no, I I'm up, really excited. I grew excited. up loving grass, and I still have some nostalgia for mm. it. But the older we get, you know, the less fully, the less fully we give of ourselves to the bullshit. Fine. Fine. Anyway, uh, we'll be in Berlin soon. And that's that. That's clay. The clay season is mercifully over. Not something I usually say. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. You can find everything BodyServe related at linktree.com slash thebodyserve. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.